1: This is a podcast from Minute Media.
2: So, what you're going to hear today is a really fun interview I did with Pablo Torre. It comes on the heels of PTI 20, an hour long television special that he worked on looking back at the history of part in the interruption over its two decade history. It's an incredible show. We know this. It changed the way that both sports television and a lot of entertainment television operates in good ways, in bad ways. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of bad imitators. I've been a part of some bad imitators Uh, my bad hands up that's on me, but it just goes to show how it totally changed the shape of what people thought a successful show had to look like. In addition to that hour of television, there's a four part podcast series appearing under the ESPN daily feed, which you know, Pablo from hosting that ESPN daily. That's it's daily. It's not weekly. There's some confusion, but daily means every single day and that will really give a chance for this story to stretch its legs. Pablo was really excited for people to check it out. And we talked about a wide range of things. I tried to get a feud going. He didn't really take the bait. There's a campaign afoot, maybe, that maybe Pablo is a corpse on law and order. We went deep on a lot of stuff, some dumb stuff, some serious stuff. He was totally game for everything we wanted to do. You'll be hearing that interview after this long, awkward pause. All right, what I want to do is... um, As we welcome in Pablo Torre. Were you the producer on PTI 20? What exactly was your role on that?
1: I was the corrupt grandson who was hired to be also the biographer, the genealogist of this family. Uh, But no, no, no. I was the reporter, I guess. This was something that was done through the E60 folks. And they're like really good at making high-end features for television. And so... I got conscripted to be the reporter, quote unquote, which is sort of the quote unquote host. But what that really meant was that I sat with Tony in D.C. and I sat with Wilbon in Chicago and I interviewed Levitard remotely. And then we blended this all together with the with a lot of other people who did interviews and did the hard work of like, you know, actually doing the shit that I don't know how to do, which is assembling lots and lots of tape archival anew and blending it into something that could fit inside of 60 Minutes. Yeah.
2: So it aired on Tuesday. I watched it. If I can find it on the Labyrinth, that is ESPN Plus Originals <laughs> on my computer, you can find it too. And, and we I was-
1: appreciate you navigating the Labyrinth. There's like a Minotaur at the center that may murder you, but if you defeat him, you get to watch PTI 20. Yes.
2: I've lost a few friends in the battle of content. I don't like to to bring it up, but I think what stood out to me about it is the tones, the different type of tones you were able to set. And I thought at moments it dipped into nostalgia, at moments it dipped into like this real genuine bond between the people. And I thought you were able to hit a bunch of different notes and you came back from commercial break as it were, and kind of went in a different direction. I thought that that structuring was really smart and interesting, so how did you make that decision?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, this is where I, I I take off my cap and I throw it in the air and I take credit for the work of lots of other people. I mean, this is something that Andy Tennant, who runs the E60 group, and this shouldn't sound like a fucking acceptance speech for anything, because I'm answering just a simple question, but the point is there are producers. So basically, they turned this around terrifyingly enough and like, I think under two months, like as much as we had 20 years to, (laughs) to get ready for this, the turnaround, this was kind of crazy on, this was kind of crazy. And so one producer got assigned one segment and then everybody came together to just sort of make sure, okay, does this all fit together? How does this all all flow? And what you noticed, I think is a very, very well-executed dance between a bunch of different people trying to make it all sound cohesive. And I think they pulled it off. We pulled it off my role in all of this was really to, you know, I, I gave notes, but I'm not going to lie and say that this was my vision in terms of the structure. What I did was really encourage, like for all of the tones we're going to hit here, which you astutely did note. And I enjoyed watching too. What I wanted was just to make sure that there was still the spirit of the show inside of it. Like celebrating yourself on ESPN, Kyle is like, you know, it's a nightmarish proposition in general. And so to do it in a way that actually resonated with people and didn't feel too corny or too self-celebratory but kind of hit a note that reminded people maybe of the note that PTI tries to hit, which is to say, let's also make sure we make fun of ourselves and laugh at ourselves and get that spirit in it. Like the idea that George Solomon, their editor of The Post, was poking and prodding Kornheiser throughout this thing. And we got to put Kornheiser on tape kind of sounding like him, both clearly complainy but also denying the fact that he was a complainy type of guy we wanted you know some element of authenticity in terms of all of that
2: in addition to the program there's a four-part podcast series that's running is it on the espn daily platform saturdays yes through october
1: it, that's exactly right it is on saturdays for four weeks starting this saturday and that is where yeah, I've been in those Google Docs in a more intimate way just because, you know, I am... I, and again, we have Mike Philbrick and Yves Tro who've been working with me on this whole thing. And and it's, it's again, a team effort, as all this must be. But that we have... Look, we, we taped interviews for this PTI 20 thing that oftentimes were an hour each. So, like, there's a world in which, you know, there's a Dan Levitard exclusive, just him talking about PTI kind of a deal. Tony, Mike, I mean, with Wilbon, man... Like, Wilbon, we, I was in Chicago doing this interview, we ran out of tape. Like, I don't think that has ever happened before, where, like, there literally was not enough tape to keep the thing going. So we just have so much good stuff from everybody involved, from Steve Young down the line to, you know, all of these guys. And, And so we are getting to use that in a way that's not just like, oh, here's the leftovers, but here's kind of a more more, certainly a more podcasty, deep dive, you know, multi-layered kind of narrative that we're going to try to pull off in four episodes. And when I got assigned four episodes, I'll admit, I was like, that seems too many. Like, I don't know why we got to do four parts for this with a separate independently made like uh, TV special that I'm also going to be involved with. But the stuff that we got back, I mean, what's crazy is that I think the spirit of PTI kind of did animate people to be their best storytelling selves. And so you have all of these people who like were really like swinging fences, man, in terms of just giving quotes. And and so we're going to make use of that in some way.
2: So when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with you today, I figured we'd do a little this and that, and then I made it a segment, you know, always be producing.
1: Yes. I've
2: been taught. So I wrote down seven questions under this seven under that. So I think we're going to go one, this one, that, and if you would be so kind to pick a number one through seven. (laughs)
1: i'm a big fan of the close-up magic that kyle's about to do for me here uh i'm gonna pick the number four
2: okay number four would young pablo believe a time-traveling pablo that this would lie in his future
1: no no in fact like i i god In so many ways no and and i you know kornheiser told me in the doing of this doc that like he knew what he wanted to do at eight years old i believe like when he was as soon as he gained sentience basically he knew he wanted to be a newspaper sports writer i did not know i wanted to do any of this in fact i did not want to do any of this um it was just not a thing that even crossed my mind in terms of sports journalism or sports media like i was going to go be at first a doctor because my parents are i have a urologist dad a dermatologist mom And uh, I I then wanted to go be a lawyer because I realized I was not good at all, like good enough at math and science. And so I was gonna go be a lawyer because that was like a stable ladder of a career that I could see other people who went to my high school and then went to the same college, they trod that path and then they got money and success in very conventional, safe ways. And no, man, like the idea, and I was always a sports fan. I just never, I did not know legitimately, like this was a job. And uh, that sort of uh, notion of like of just utter unawareness of like that this could have been a life um, that continued as late as like after college when I was taking the LSAT, you know, not just once, but twice because I was very dead set on becoming a lawyer. And so, you know, and just the the very quick anecdote on that, like I took the LSAT a second time because the first one I like kind of flop sweated, panic attacked my way through it was like, oh, no, this did not go great. And if you had come to me, if a genie, if a genie, Kyle, um, if I discovered a a magic lamp and rubbed it and a genie was like, you get three wishes, I would have said, wish number one, I want to go to the best law school I can like in a very sincere and sad way. Like, I would have absolutely wasted one of my wishes on that. And, and so the idea that I took the LSAT, weighted through it, then took it again. And in the interim was like, well, I did intern at Sports Illustrated because I just did that for fun. And because I was writing college sports for the newspaper, like, is that a thing I could do as a gap year? And so I took the LSAT a second time the next day and, and studied in the library for a whole fucking summer again. So two summers in a row, I wasted studying for this stupid test. The next day after the second LSAT, I showed up at Sports Illustrated and proceeded to enter a world that I never left until my LSAT score expired. And I was like, oh, I guess I burned the boats on this one. I got nowhere else to go.
2: I think I'm going to zig where everybody else zags. And I don't want to find a magic lamp with a genie. The pressure of deciding what wish to pick would be far too great. And I think it'd be more trouble than it was worth.
1: Yeah. I mean, more wishes is the way that obviously you try to go. And then you realize that there are rules in the role-playing game that you've been entered into with this genie. And so, yeah, it's a lot of pressure and I would have absolutely made terrible decisions.
2: All right. One from the, that column one through seven.
1: Okay. Wow. Um, let's go six. All
2: right. I want an honest answer here. When you say mm. here's the thing, are you just stalling?
1: <laughs> think about what you're going to say next. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's very little. Well, um, so Actually, I'm stalling in this answer because I'm thinking about a clever way to put this. But yeah, absolutely. That is just me being caught in the air. Dominique Foxworth likes to say this all the time when we do uh, television together, that I do a lot of jump passes. Or I'll like jump in the air, say something, and be like, all right, time to make a decision about who, where this is going to go. And here's the thing started off as a jump pass. It then became a catchphrase that I then unwittingly, genuinely just made into a real like thing I say. Kind of like how I text my wife LOL all the time at first, ironically. And now I just say it out loud. like I just say LOL to her in real life. And it's just like, well, the joke's gone, and now I'm just this guy now.
2: Yeah, I've noticed that when I ask someone a question, they'll either say, oh, that's a great question, or I get that a lot. And I think that both of those can be used either as like a great compliment or a great burn, but it's just someone, I need to think for like 10 or 15 seconds to formulate what I'm going to say.
1: I don't have the confidence of Stephen A. to just do dramatic pauses. I I don't have that confidence. I I, I could just sit silently and think, but I'm too actually uh insecure to do that and so i have to pretend like i'm doing a real wind up to a pitch that i have no idea uh where it's going
2: shifting back over to the this category we're gonna go with number two i'm gonna pick this one for you sorry my show i get okay. to do what i want question is just eric Rideholm, genius because when you yes. watch the doc as someone who kind of has an eye for that about people who want to have like a big idea and have other people execute it on the air, I thought that he came off tremendously. Obviously his reputation is what it is, but I was so impressed at the calmness and there's this anecdote where someone said that he might get the job and the next thing you know he's presenting an 18-page document <laughs> and one of the notes that they showed or you guys showed was that this show could be the Cisco and Eber and i think him being a chicago guy he latched onto that
1: yeah i mean it, w- it was crazy i didn't realize that the 18-page thing like they showed i think like screen caps of the actual like fonting of that document and i was like man This is a treatise like this is a real vision that they executed step by step. And that's 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 him. I mean, he does nothing without, I would say, deep thought involved. And he is. Yeah, he's he's smarter than the average bear, man. Like the idea that he and this is the thing that I hope people take away from the PTI stuff and him and what he's done to this business for good and bad. Like the good is that he saw where all of this was headed. He saw that attention spans were shrinking you know he is ahead of all as much as he is a guy who who made his bones in linear tv he has a he has an awareness of where all of this is going and has had it for 20 plus years now and so the idea that maybe people are only going to have like their attention spans kind of like sticking with something for a minute a minute 30 and therefore let's put a menu of items on the right side of the screen so that if they don't like the thing that they are getting for this minute they know what's coming up next and then after that and after that within a very delineated explicitly clocked out sort of a way I mean that's the internet before the internet you know that's what YouTube looks like that's what now every cable news show looks like Tony and Mike like to say that he built them the greatest race car and all they got to do is go and drive it I think that is that is the first thing the second thing though is just being you know a guy who understands human relations in ways that are rare when you get to television which is a world of ego monsters and he is somebody who is remarkably uh, balanced and well read and is would have way better conversations about stuff beyond sports even than sports, the thing that he has, I think, mastered in terms of the television production side of things as much as any human being ever. Uh, um, So yeah, genius is not an underestimation um, as per everybody who said as much in the doc. All
2: right, we'll just do number two from the other category. We'll go in order. I won't make you do any picking here.
1: All right. How much pressure is
2: it to hang out with Sudeikis? Because (laughs) I feel that that's kind of like the ultimate... for me, but then I would just be so in my head, like I try to, there's like, I'm not gonna be half as cool as this guy. So what's the approach there?
1: Yeah, my approach is to just be uh, lingering in the background as, as people ask him for autographs and just be like uh, basking in the refracted glow of, of his success. No, man, he's, he's great. I mean, look, he's, he's somebody who I admire. He's somebody who I've now gone to like NBA playoff games with. He's fantastic. I mean, the the Ted Lasso thing is, is, God, I can't even wrap my brain around it because it's its own discourse on top of another discourse. And Jason himself is like... And this is like celebrities; they're just like us. But no, he's just like a fucking normal dude who will, yes, be funnier and more handsome than I ever, ever will be. And I'm just glad that he finds me uh, occasionally fun to hang out with. Man, it's a, uh, it's a funny thing. To I, I once went to a concert and I walked out of the concert behind, and this is very coincidental behind Paul Rudd. This is a couple of years ago at Madison Square Garden, and I just got. It was like the. It was like being. It's like the Goodfellas single tracking shot where I just got to watch everyone else sort of like move around him. And with Jason, it's that now level of just like celebrity where it's like, everyone's just like, Oh man, that's fucking Ted Lasso. Look at him. And it's just, I'm just glad to be traveling in his wake, you know, in general.
2: All right. For this, you have three, five, six, or seven.
1: <sighs> three.
2: Why are all journalists fascinated by other journalists? Ah, narcissism?
1: Uh, (laughs) I, I, I think that, and this is something that I think gets bred early on. I remember in college at the newspaper, like, the entire exercise was to imagine that we were actually just the New York Times. And no one ever said that explicitly, but it was just sort of a sense of self. It's like, no, we got something to say. We matter. And so the idea that people who report professionally love nothing more than to gossip and report for free about each other. You know, there is something to the idea of, yeah, there's a self-obsession there that maybe, you know, now that I think about it, I think a lot of industries probably have that. But the fact that you have a platform from which to then make pronounced statements, I think, adds probably to that self-delusion. Do you have a theory on that?
2: Well, as someone who basically does it for a living. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I I, no, I think a big part of it is that in a lot of ways other journalists were seen as more interesting than the athletes that were being covered. And I think that was kind of built into the sauce because we didn't cover athletes as human beings. We kind of like, Hey, this is what they do. They're in that corner. But if we really want to get the weighty mental stuff, we're going to go to the other journalists because obviously they're the experts. They're the smartest people in the room. Um, I think that there's like a level of nobility to it. I mean, even in 2021, like there's a mutual respect society where it's like, Hey, this person does something good. Like it, and and it's important. Um, And then I think it's just genuine admiration.
1: Like I'm so glad that you took this question from the non deeply cynical perspective, because I, I can't even, I, I I am so self-conscious about journalism uh, and tooting of our own horn, broadly speaking, the Royal hour in that. Um, But you're right. Underneath all of it is like a real appreciation for this, this profession. Journalism beyond the cinematic depictions of it, it actually is something that is worth thinking about and preserving in ways that are, I would say, very sincere.
2: Of course. I mean, you have to, you know, there's merit in separating the good from the bad. Right. And I think that's kind of like on our best day what we do on a site is try to like apply some sort of critical lens to this is, this was good. Maybe not if something's bad, we don't have to write about why it's bad, but it's like to understand what people are trying to accomplish with their show or on their paper or whatever. So judge it by what they're trying to do. And I mentioned Ebert earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with him when I just got out of college. Oh, wow. he judged movies on what they were trying to be. Right. So not everything was the same thing. So you had to understand the vision. So I think it's really interesting to get behind the minds that are writing the stories because in its own way, it is an art form. And even though it gets pushed out to the masses, look, I mean, you have a different audience from people who follow your stuff than Trent Dilfer,
1: but you're in the same <laughs> sphere. Yeah, no, I've always thought of myself as a Trent Dilfer, uh, of sports journalism, uh, <laughs> yo. No, hold on. I want to ask about Ebert for a second. Um, what was that? How would you describe that experience to someone who only knows of Ebert through myth and legend? Basically,
2: so I was. It was my first job out of college. They put me on the web staff, which was basically at that time the internet was so new that they had to have every young person, regardless of training, go over there and figure out how to put things online. And part of that is RogerEbert.com was yep. sometimes property, and I've written about this before, but on the second day of real work for me, I came back from lunch and Ebert and his wife were sitting in my seat. Uh, As I came back from lunch, I'm like, all right, this is awesome. But also like, (laughs) where do I sit? It was this really surreal experience. But at that point it was pretty late. It was not long before he died, but he remained so prolific as a writer. I think he wrote about everything 4am stuff would be coming. Anything he wanted to write about it under the sun, whether it was social issues, whether it was a movie, whether it was, re- whether it was revisiting something that he had done before. So you're talking about the best that's ever done it, a lot of people would say. And he was still working his ass off because mm-hmm. he loved the work. So it was this amazing experience to interact with him over email very lightly, basically like putting some HTML tags on stuff. Uh, And saying, does it look good on the site? Very rudimentary. Like, you know, like it's. it sounds like it's from the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really, it was really awesome to do that. And I think that having that level of like a cultural critic, like movies were the lens that we viewed the world and largely still are although tv has encroached on it he has such a powerful and seminal voice about like what movies were trying to say and how Mm -hmm. that reflected society so i think that as a writer and a thinker and an observer he will go down as one of the best at cataloging the times we lived in
1: no doubt i mean what's funny is that and this happens to anybody who gains a certain amount of fame even just talking about Sudeikis in this way I'm like sort of acknowledging like man he's just so famous that it's hard to like even imagine like his interior life and so I did a very bad job of displaying and describing what he's actually like so I apologize for that but with Ebert I feel similarly where it's sort of like man this guy is like a guy who'd become a cartoon character at some point and then you realize that like his actual perspective as a writer and a thinker was so incisive and deliberate and that part is going to be a real treat to preserve, you know, like in retrospect, obviously, in death, he's going to be a guy that I think people rightfully study in school and learn from and, and try to belong to his school of thinking, which would be awesome.
2: You've been able to, I'm going off my list. I'm sorry. I was, yes, what you said. Number
1: eight, I'm, we're going I'm to number eight, improving, improving. Kyle is dancing Uh, for the record for those who you've
2: been able you've been able to rub elbows with so many people who are who have done amazing things like I I I know that there are many people who think that Bomani is the best to ever do it on television you know and you you went mano mano with him for so long what rush do you get when you're in the same room as greatness and it's adding to the thing that you're working on creatively
1: yeah I mean Bo is special man. He's a special brain. he's unlike any other brain that I've come to meet and interact with and work with on a daily basis. so on that argument, anybody who makes it yeah i i I nod in assent and and I totally get that so for me, it is I have been very lucky to work with and been asked to work with people that I admire, and so Whenever, I mean, this, the way my brain works, I always think about like, you know, when people, and this is, this is me still feeling like kind of part imposter syndrome me and also part like the grandson in any given room because the people I tend to admire tend to be older than me, but I'm always like looking for stuff to copy and steal, man. Uh, I, I still approach it that way. Whenever someone would ask like, you know, uh, what's your voice as a writer? I would always, you know, my interior monologue is like, man, well, it's it's a bunch of me doing various imitations of other people that get mashed up over time. And then it comes out feeling maybe like myself. And I, I think I'm probably doing myself a disservice there, but in terms of how I watch and wanna learn from people, it always starts out with like, wow, they do this thing that I wish that I could do, or this is what I know I can't do that they are great at. And so I, I tend to, you know, I, in that way, I think I kind of have a, a, a bit of a producer editor mentality. In that I tend to step outside of myself and I'm like, man, if I could do this like this person, you know, if I had the the extemporaneous immediate wit of Tony Kornheiser, who to me is the best on-air conversationalist in sports television ever, in terms of somebody who sells the other person, someone who can come up with a line that is genuinely funny, someone who speaks with a cadence that is always very controlled and precise and never feeling like he is stalling for time ever... You know, like I noticed that stuff because I'm like, I'm kind of a jump pass guy. I'm a here's the thing guy. And I'm like, I want to be more like Tony in that way. Obviously, a work in progress. When I think of Bo, I think of somebody who from whom I learned like you don't have to, and this is kind of the opposite of Kornheiser, but it's like someone who did not over prepare for television, someone who was always reading and studying and learning and consuming, obviously, but somebody who didn't write out every sentence of the thought that they wanted to give on air later that day. It always encouraged being extemporaneous and improvisational in that way. And, and again, the speed of processing kind of dynamic. Um, again, Stephen A., I mentioned the dramatic pauses. I, I just To be around people that are better than me in any sort of way is a challenge for me to try and get that much closer to what they do that I know that I currently am not.
2: All right. Looking at the board on that, we have one, three, four, five, or seven available.
1: Let's go with one.
2: What have you gotten out of officiating weddings?
1: Oh man! I mean, as a minister of the Universal Life Church, it is it is a responsibility. It's with great power comes great responsibility, as as uh, Uncle Ben said, R.I.P. Um, it is something that is easy to joke about, and then you show up, and you're like, I am so glad I took. This seriously, you know, because there's the idea of like, wow, someone asked me to to officiate their wedding, and I did this. I've done two weddings, one for two diehard 76ers fans, at was once, you know, the annual my favorite annual NBA ritual, which was the 76ers NBA lottery draft party. This was during the process era, and so they do the ping pong ball drawing to establish where in the draft you're gonna pick, And, and so. Uh, the Rights to Ricky Sanchez guys, their podcast, they w- would have a giant 2,000-person gathering at the Xfinity Center, I believe it is, right near the Sixers Arena, right near Wells Fargo. And so I was on an elevated platform marrying two diehard Sixers fans, and I wrote vows for them. I mean, not, I mean, sorry, they wrote the vows. I wrote an officiant speech. You know, it was a very real thing. And it, it's it's not... Something that you can just do um, half-assedly. I really did try for that one. And I'm glad I did because it was very, very public. And also Robert Covington was there, which was great. Um, The second wedding I officiated was Levitar's wedding. And that I did more reporting for that than probably anything I've written in the last, you know. well, I don't write very much anymore, but the last like five years, it was like me actually talking to Dan and Valerie and the people who love them and telling their story and like writing a speech based off that. I mean, I I was very, 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 very proud of, of that one. And, you know, so what do I enjoy about it? The responsibility and then the delivery of this thing that they, they really needed, which is someone to make this day feel special. I loved that shit. And I did not know I would love it, but I really did.
2: Yeah, I, I asked the question selfishly because I also have that purple card in my wallet. Yes. Uh, and my wife is a wedding planner and coordinator. So I get thrown in as a little carrot on top <laughs> often. And it, it's honestly, it's so great because it's like, I go about it the same way that you do, right? Like tell me why, tell me about this relationship. Tell me why it works. Tell me what you love about this person. And like for so many people, that might be one of the few times in their life that anybody's ever going to ask them that question. Yes,
1: and absolutely. And it's just like to
2: see the way that they attack it and to hear those words, from someone on that wedding day, like honestly, big sap here. But in starting to do it over the last few years, I've incorporated into saying more positive things to people in my mm. life, because it's like, here's what it means to all, to you while you're there. Look at all that it means to the people out there. And life is too short. Like why can't every day there be some sort of like message like, hey, you're great at this, or I really like what you're doing here. And I think that it's really awesome Because it's one of the things that's remained in society, which are getting like smaller and smaller, really pure. The pure moment when it's officiant and the two people up there, that's Mm -hmm. very real. And it's a very real feeling and you feel it in the pit of your stomach, but you also feel excited and honored that you're always going to be like forever linked to those people.
1: Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, it. You know, I remember we, we did a podcast about uh, Jalen Rose and all the kids who got named Jalen after him. And he made a point that reminded me kind of of what you were just saying, which is that there's no greater honor than to be named after someone. And, and in this case, it's kind of a parallel thing. Is there any greater honor than being asked to be permanently in every one of these wedding photos? <laughs> like, you're the guy for all time with this couple. Like, you're, you're the one who got to do this for them. And, and to I, I found that approaching it almost like I was writing a profile of them. Because I would ask all the questions that you asked Like, tell me about yourselves. Why? Do, is I, I have to explain this to like this congregation of people in a way, way that is personal. Because the worst thing, Kyle, obviously, is to have a just a Mad Lib kind of boilerplate speech. You know, I I am a lapsed uh, buffet Catholic. Like, I know when the priest is just like you know going through the motions here, and to have you know the guy marrying you really have put time in and tell your story you could do it in a way that's weirdly a little journalistic too which i didn't anticipate when i again i went into this
2: all right this we have one five six or seven seven well if you address this a little bit earlier but i guess i'll ask it more directly are you a tony or a michael
1: I'm a Tony guy because Tony is, is, is my de facto television grandpa. Mike is, I, I only really got to know Mike really well. I would say over this last year and doing this thing with him in Chicago was a big step forward. in just me understanding him because he, well, I mean, they're so different. Mike welcomed me and was the ultimate host and brought me around as a apartment building showed me his place took me around town like that dude is i i just found him to be i think in the same way that tony did obviously incredibly charismatic and welcoming and really fun to be around so and i, I will say i dressed as him as for halloween i dressed up as mike for halloween on television and he loved it and, and that, I'm like, anybody who has that sense of humor about themselves is A-OK. But Tony and I, I mean, Tony and I talk on the phone, and he leaves me voicemails, and we text. I mean, that, that's a relationship that has gone back years now. So for that reason, I am him. But I love Wilbon so much.
2: Yeah, I was, are you as cynical as, as Tony, though?
1: I am not as cynical, but I'm pretty damn cynical. Um, maybe because it's rubbed off on me, but I tend to imagine what would an evil person be doing in this scenario just to make sure that I have considered all possibilities. I, I unlike him, don't always think the plane is going down figurative and literal, like obviously he has great fears and neuroses and anxieties about that and sort of anticipates over anticipates bad scenarios, but I like to have a joint case when possible. Um, so maybe that does seep in to my natural outlook at this point.
2: All right. On that we have... Three, four, five, or
1: seven? Let's go for five.
2: News came out this week that Law & Order is coming back. The great (laughs) Dick Wolf. You can't keep a good man down. Now, am I mistaken, or did you go to the high school where they always visited in the show?
1: Oh, man. I I did Regis High School in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Did they visit that a lot? If so, then yes. Um, I don't know it as part of the legend, though. I I feel like I would have known that. But... But I, I mean, God, and far be it for me to ever say that Christopher Maloney's bare ass is not welcome on 85th and Park, if that's what you're asking me. I mean, Law and Order, God, I've, I've absorbed—I I wouldn't even say watched—I've absorbed through osmosis, probably the entire catalog of Law and Order at this point. My wife is a diehard fan, and I have, you know, it's, it's, it's an institution, man. That is America.
2: I think you could get on it if you wanted, and I think it would make sense. I would love
1: to. I would love to.
2: <laughs> Can we make that a thing? That's going to be the I, plot. I'm going to be like, Pablo Torre, campaigns to get on Law & Order.
1: No, even, even more, like, please murder me on Law & Order. I, I will be uh, a corpse to be disposed of or discovered. I would also certainly be like, you know, the guy who has way too much detail about a random person that came into his deli. I'll be that guy. But, uh, you know, defile me defile me as you wish dick wolf this is an open invitation for dick wolf to defile me
2: oh, yeah that's becoming a bit of a tradition here on this on this <laughs> podcast uh, you know funny story the, my best high school teacher did some acting which was crazy cuz i grew up in grand rapids michigan but she was a corpse on csi and mm. we all got a huge kick out Love of that. seeing like her charred body at the at the beginning of of that one yes I, we're rounding out. We're rounding out. You got one, five and six on this. We're running okay. on time. We'll try to make it like a light. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I'll speed it up. All right. Let's go with one.
2: All right. There's a long winded question, bad okay. timing. What okay. challenges and opportunities does being this close to the subject, like in the PTI thing present for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to humiliate them and As a general rule, that's not my MO for anybody who wants to be interviewed by me one day. I'm not trying to humiliate anybody, but that's the thing is that like, there's a fourth wall that you kind of need to wink at, if not break. Like I do the show with these guys. I love them and they love me in that way. So the responsibility is greater to tell a story that is good in spite of that. And, and so I was very self-aware and in this podcast, by the way, you know, I'm a host in the first person I acknowledge it's at the top. Like I Say it, it's a, I say it this way, it's a family history, and it's as if I got assigned a 23 Me thing. And it's like, go find out where you came from. And it's like, well, in that, there will be love, and there will be affection, and there will be bias, but there's also going to be a real desire to get to the bottom of stuff and to show people why I think this family is very weird and also special. How'd you think you did? I did all right. Great. Did all right. The four-part podcast will be the true test of it because we got a lot more toys to play with and a lot more sound to use for ESPN celebrating itself. I, I was kind of staggered by how much people were not stopped by that. Maybe the nostalgia bath was enough. Um, people just love the show that much, and so it's not even just about whatever the fuck I did. But I- I'm proud of it. I'm proud of how it turned out given that kind of complication.
2: There's three left in that. We have three, okay. four, and seven.
1: Yep, let's go with three. All
2: right, this is a big one, big one, man. Do you think that
1: octopi are aliens? I think that they're as functionally aliens as anything. I mean, if you were, to, this is so. Yes, I'm going to go with yes, hard yes, and it's because if you were to dream up an alien, if you ask a, if you were to ask a child to draw an alien and describe what they do. I mean, you would describe an octopus. I I hope that your listeners, Kyle, know what octopi can do. But the idea that they can fit into a quarter-sized hole, the fact that they can open jars from the inside, the fact that they can create and simulate the texture and pattern of, of coral reef and rocks, the fact that they can change color, the fact that they can shoot ink, the fact that they can ejaculate out of their octopi arms, the fact that they can wrap around someone's face like... Literally they did in Alien with face huggers. Like checking all the boxes, man. The fact that they're smarter than anyone appreciates, the fact that they're also delicious on the back end, like I feel like every box is checked.
2: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I, I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think that you make the perfect case. Like, if you were to gonna create what an alien would be, you're exactly right. You didn't, I don't think you mentioned that its entire body is its brain based on Ooh, the way that the neurons are spread yep. out. That's a pretty good one. That's Also, a good one. my favorite food, very weird, but you know, ultimate respect. If you're talking about like a good handshake, like great game out there, <laughs> I think the ultimate respect is if you're going to eat an animal. If it is your favorite food, it's like quite a process. It's, it's, it's fine. I don't lose any sleep over it. Uh, If anything, I feel like I want to absorb some of its alien powers.
1: That's where I am. It's sort of like, I don't mean to establish an intergalactic dominance over you because I respect you, but I do hope that it rubs off on me.
2: Two left in this, five and six. Let's go with six. This one's interesting. When you're at a bar or a restaurant and the TVs are on and you're on
1: the TV, what is that like? It's it's funny and... I tend to leave. Um, I enjoy walking by those bars and like, you know, catching someone's eye and then like disappearing into uh, the, the, the foot traffic as if they saw hallucination. I'm a big fan <laughs> yeah. of that,
2: that move. Wouldn't that? Like, there's probably so many people who have the stories that are like, like, wow, I didn't think I drank that much. Or like their, their gummy has just kicked in where you're like, are you, I could have <laughs> saw that guy, and, but they're too scared to say it to anybody. Yeah. Cause they're going to be like, what are you talking about?
1: It's like, I, I think I just saw a real uh, sweatier and less dressed up version of that guy, like outside. Is that possible? Is that a thing? Um, I've definitely done that to uh, a lot of a lot of people in Windows. Um, but it's otherwise uncomfortable, man. Like, I know some people get off on that. I, I don't. I don't. I, I you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, Kornheiser is a great saying, a great story about how he's at a restaurant and his and some people come over to talk to him and it's dinner. And his wife's like, you know, we're kind of dinner, uh, you know, and, and Tony's like, how do you think we got the table? You know? And so I don't want to be above this at all, but I do think it's a little bit, I don't, I don't go chasing it. Um, that, that still kind of feels weird to me.
2: Yeah. I, I feel like I, I couldn't stay in there too because just the, the elephant in the room, like you would, it's like when you don't want to check a score or whatever you're there's a game on that you taped. I'm, maybe that doesn't happen. This isn't an episode of Home Improvement. <laughs> I don't know how much that's happening anymore. But like, it's like a force field where it's like can't look at it, can't look at it, can't look at it. But you yeah, it I just you don't look
1: want to be able to, to uh, be around when I lose to Woody Page on television. You know, I just like that to happen privately for me.
2: All right, you got you got two choices for that. You got four or seven. Four, please. All right, this is the big one. You and Chris Whittingham, neutral field, maybe Wichita, academic decathlon, who wins?
1: I start off by Hadoukening him in the chest. He dies. I stand over his body and begin to recite all sorts of uh, encyclopedic entries. Um, I would destroy Chris Whittingham, but I also say that from a place of... Gen- and this is, this is real. I think Chris Whittingham is awesome, man. Whittingham and I and Mike Ryan... Uh, before he became a star with uh, Lebetard, um, we were very coincidentally all in London together. And, and we were going to go watch some soccer games. We, uh, you know, we were just there to do that. And uh, we met up, and he's a delight. And he texts me nice things like I and I, likewise to me to him. I, I, as much as I want to, you know, engage and indulge in a feud, and as much as I am legitimately jealous of the fact that they just ripped off the fact that I used to have sound under me when I would say highfalutin things, um, all of which is true. Um, I think he's so talented, man. I think he's great, but I would destroy him and I would uh show Ryuk and him into the first row of the audience.
2: Have you ever gotten a note that you're being too smart on air?
1: Mm uh yes yes (laughs) how was that processed uh processed with uh, with some degree of like yeah i get that i get that i mean i'm always doing this thing of you know is this a reference that people who watch television at fill in at 12 eastern on espn on a weekday are they going to really appreciate this like probably not um but then it's also like i'm just here to really be the best version of myself and i hope that in the making of that reference there is you know uh, a self-evident joke that may be either decipherable by context clues or they just sort of get that I'm here to you know throw an alley-oop to someone else who can dunk on it I'm not here to preserve the integrity of of the things I say necessarily yeah it's a thing I still sort of uh I still don't really know what to do with because I want to be myself and also I don't want to alienate you know the people hanging out at home during the daytime
2: I was cautioned to never use a reference that less than half the readership would understand when I was in magazine writing class in college. Uh, sure. I love my professor. Didn't heed the advice. And, you know, I have a home and, and a mortgage. So, like, obviously, there was a way around it.
1: Yeah, I just feel like whatever gets people to be the best versions of themselves, you know, I the modulation of that, I find to be that, you know, if I may if I may reverse this accusation, that's a little bit too precious. You know, I think we're overthinking that one, actually. I think people kind of go with the flow if they like the person. Um, So as long as I'm not alienating them in a real way, I am, yeah, I, I tend to try to do my own thing.
2: All right, we're down to the nitty and gritty here. Last one, why did you want to do ESPN Daily and what's it been like to grow that with your voice?
1: Yeah, I'm super proud of that, and we—it's so much work, and I have such an amazing staff that I work with that make it all possible. You know, we have a staff of producers that do the things that I do not, and that I can trust to take care of things like, hey, let's get a Google Doc together of all the prep that I need. Let's work on a roadmap here, and then when I come in, you know, because I'm doing a, you know, at least an interview a day, basically, I work six days a week on this thing. It—it it actually becomes manageable, um, and it is absolutely impossible without those people. Um, The reason I wanted to do it was because I really admired the show that Mina had launched and built. And I thought that we could make it even better and I could do my own thing with it. And that it scratched the itch of journalism for me. I had been divorced from journalism. I had gone kind of full gas bag in that way, which is a delight, to be honest, but and, and was less work also, to be honest. But for me to get to talk to people who are reporting stories and also people who make news themselves, In an audio format, that I, you know, it's crazy to, you know, it turns out that podcasting might be the future. Um, I just wanted to get in on that. Um, I just found that the medium was something that I naturally enjoyed, you know, and the idea that I could write some essays that I would read and perform, so to speak, and then also do interviews and basically build muscle, you know, it's a lot of work, but I feel like I, 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 a, I really like it, but B, the muscles of interviewing and thinking and working faster and and being able to work with people on a team. Like, I think I'm so much better having gone through this. And yeah, I'm very proud of doing an ambitious show every day. It's just, we do so much in terms of output that sometimes you feel like that raccoon that's putting cotton candy in water. And then it's like, where did this go? And you sort of look around and it's that meme. Um, I do feel like that a lot, but for that moment, when the cotton candy is not dissolved, I, I, I'm super, super proud that we do something that's high level this often.
2: Well, I, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that. I think that, you know, if you do enjoy it, it is something that can be a bit of a legacy. I mean, a daily show that's the flagship. This is what we're doing as a news magazine. Like there's so yeah, man. many podcasts in the area in the arena is so saturated, but let's not lose sight of what that is. Like that's a premier property. And that's a chance to like really etch your voice and do the thing you want to do in an apartment that's only going to
1: like grow. And and uh, thank you. And and what you said, the word news magazine is exactly how I see it, which is to say that some days you're going to get you know, us talking about the NFL games the day before, because we know that's what America lusts for and so we'll get that to you in the smartest most compelling way we know how. But other days you're gonna get a really well-reported magazine story or an investigation. I mean, if there's any criticism of the show, it's that it's many shows in one. You know, it's not always the analytics nerd show, although we'll have Daryl Morion on to do that. It's not always the show that is very, very joke-driven, although, you know, we'll have Dominique Foxworth on and we'll just laugh about football sometimes. It's not always gonna be the show that's straight ahead analysis, although we can do that which is to say it's a magazine, you know, it's like, it's a bunch of different departments in one. And so that variety also is something that because I'm a person who likes to do many different things in many different genres, the, the, the ability to indulge all of those is, is super rare. And so to have, yeah, the, the thing with the company's name on it and that sort of uh, hand on the steering wheel is, is pretty exciting to me.
2: There is but one question left, and it's a very specific one. Not the most important one, but that's the way it happens when you just name random numbers. (laughs) There was at one point when you were broadcasting from home, you were basically doing it under a blanket fort. I believe that that got tweeted out. What were your honest feelings in that moment? Was it rock bottom,
1: or is that a high you're still chasing to this day? So I remember that fort. And the main concern that I had was, I Googled all of this. So basically to paint the picture here, I was in the corner of a room. I was in a, was in a house on Long Island that I was there. I had escaped the pandemic to spend five weeks on Long Island. And so there was a basement full of bugs that I needed to occupy because that's the only place I could record. And so I built out this kind of, uh, as you described it, this recording tent um, pillow fort. And the top of it, I just started throwing uh, soundproofing foam that I got off Amazon. And at a certain point, I was Googling soundproofing foam. And and there were many, many warnings about how this was like the most flammable material someone could bring into their home. And so I was concerned about the danger and the integrity structurally of the fort. But honestly, once I realized that the sound was pretty decent, I, I I, I, I felt kind of like a pioneer. You know, I was like... I could do this from this place? No, I could. This is great. I love this shit. And now, yes, there were many bugs and I also had to get like bug traps. That was pretty rock bottomy. But the fact that I successfully built a recording studio, so to speak. Yeah, man. I look upon that era fondly now.
2: Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, it, it, it really changed a lot in terms of what can be done Offsite. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, we realize that I'm in a, a closet, of-
1: Kyle. I'm in my wife's closet right now. So, like, this is all, I'm only steps up removed from the pillow fort. But yes, I've discovered that my house has many possibilities for professional work that I did not know about before. Yeah.
2: And I think that's like why the basement blogger thing hits home for so many people. (laughs) Like, why wouldn't you want to be in a nice basement? You don't have to commute. You got food on tap. I mean, it's kind of like a great situation if you're if you're okay with it mentally.
1: I wish I had a basement. Uh, My apartment is just a two bedroom apartment in Manhattan. And if I had a basement, I would be living the life, man. I would love a I would love, you know, my basement, my mom's basement. I'd work out of any basement at this point. would love access to a basement.
2: Yep. In order to go up, you must first go down. First rule of business. Pablo, (laughs) PTI 20. We have a four-part podcast series on ESPN Daily Saturdays in October. Thanks so much for talking about some serious stuff and some really stupid stuff uh, with me. It's been a long time coming and hope to have you back.
1: Yeah, man. I am am grateful that you care at all about the things we do. And you clearly thought about the questions here to a degree that would make any, I think, reasonable person sad about their life. But because you did it for me, I consider you a great hero. So thank you.